The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. As always, thank you. In the cross, in the cross, great, great hymn, great truth there. Well, I invite your attention to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3, and we will be starting in verse 31 this morning as we are continuing our uh, slow but but s- uh, decent progress through the book of Mark. I, we joked last week that we went through 10 verses. That's the most we had done literally in like months. So uh, praise God for that and thank God for that. But today, uh, we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. That's page 838 if you're in the Pew Bible, if you need that as well. Uh, as you're turning there, just want to uh, just invite you again to next Sunday uh, as we take a special time to hear from Luke Weir, who we support as one of our missionaries with No Longer Music. Uh, Luke, of course, is in Poland, uh, and uh, he'll be sharing a little bit about their last season's tour, and he'll share a gospel message through that, a sermon, if you will, but also some special time of prayers. We look towards the future of our church, and uh, I say that, I've said that publicly several times. You're at the business meeting, you know a little bit about this, but we're not trying to change things completely, but we want to get that direction biblically about where we're headed uh, in the next several years, and, and emphasizing several years, because God is glorified in all things. Uh, uh, so you come, and we're going to have a special time of prayer in our service to do that after we hear from Luke next week. Well, as you are in Mark chapter 3, I, I love the quotes of this guy because he's so pithy, P-I-T-H-Y, pithy. He's short, he's, he's uh, sarcastic, and uh, those are all things I seem to love as well. Uh, this is the man, and his hair looks like mine when it grows out too, except for that mustache, but it's pretty good. His name being Mark Twain, of course, and you know he's from our our little area town of Hannibal, just a few hours away from here in northeast Missouri. But Mark Twain uh, was, of course, well-known, and a businessman was also well-known in Mark Twain's area for being a ruthless man, just like a Scrooge type of man in that story. And he said to Mark Twain one day, he said, Twain, before I die, I'm going to go make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, go see all the holy sites, and I'm going to climb up on Mount Sinai, and I'm going to read the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to shout it so loud that everyone will hear it. And as Twain could only say, he looked at him with this look, I can only imagine, and said, Sir, I have a better idea. Why don't you stay where you are and try and keep them before you try and shout them out? Woo! Only Mark Twain could get away with saying such a thing. Well, isn't that true of the Christian life, that the Christian life really is a call to radical obedience? It's one thing to read from the mountaintops the very things that we believe, but it's another to actually live out the very things that we have. But the Christian life is one of submission. We believe it is something that we are to give our lives to the will of God and to the will of Christ, not our own. And all discipleship, all discipleship comes from the fact that we pursue Christ's will and not my will. It's not about my time or my wants or my desires or my plans. That's all been buried. But instead, I now live for the Son of God who gave his life for me. 
You remember that story in 1 Samuel chapter 15, don't you? Of, of Saul and uh, the prophet Samuel. And Saul went through this whole laundry list of things he did for the Lord. And Samuel said this one phrase. You probably said it to your kids. You know what it is? 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than to sacrifice. You can do lots of things for God, but in one word, it all comes down to this. It's obedience. My obedience to the will of God, and that's where discipleship, radical living for God comes to be. Not just saying what you believe, but living what you say by God's grace and strength. And a Christian, as we know, is a follower of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a little Christ in that sense. In order to follow Christ, that necessitates that we step out in obedience. Not just following religion, but following the God of the religion who is Jesus himself. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why the big idea today, if you're visiting with us, we, uh, our folks know this very well, but the big idea is that it's the thesis of the, the whole thing is this. And we're going to look at a weird passage that Jesus talks about these ideas, about how some people were saying, well, this is who he is, but this is what we want him to be. And they had to coalesce these two ideas together about, well, I want to follow what I think Jesus is, but Jesus is calling me over here. And Jesus never said, if you obey me, I'll love you. Rather, he said, if you love me, you will obey me. And church, the difference, of course, being the gospel is that is there. We're going to look at a passage today that has befuddled many of us because when we look at it, it's like an identity crisis. What is this trying to say? But really, it comes down to one word today. It's the word does. Because a Christian is not just someone who says they'll do something, but they're the ones who, if you're saved, will have a new path and a new life. And this new path requires humility. It requires humility to say, God, not my will be done, but your will be done. It requires submission. Lord, I want to go over here. I really do, but God, you're calling me over here. Help me to be obedient there. It requires to follow this Christ, a decisive choice. It's that when everyone else around you says, oh, I've got enough of this Jesus thing, you want it all over here and you can't get enough. It's like a fire hydrant coming at you and you're ready to stand there and drink all you can in. Being a disciple of Jesus also requires endurance. Endurance for yourself, endurance for those people you want to see changed for the very fact that you want to change them. Boy, if that's something that parenthood has taught me, it's endurance. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Uh, long obedience in the same direction requires a disciple requires also grace that you're motivated by the goodness of God that you've been set free to follow him and you've been born again to be a disciple of Christ you have to know Christ through himself repenting and believing the gospel so this morning in an obscure but necessary passage I want to look at three truths about obedience if we can as we continue our trek through Mark I want to look at the intervention that happens. Many of you may have been on the receiving end of an intervention, good or bad, I suppose. We're going to see the instruction that Jesus gives them and then the interpretation. And I want to remind us of the background of where we have been in Mark. And we have come through in recent months the study week by week of the disciples. And if you look at Mark chapter 3, you remember there in verse 20 that Jesus went home and the crowd gathered so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said he's out of his mind. Jesus needs a little intervening today, folks. And Dr. Phil ain't involved. And Oprah's retired, so it is what it is. Jesus needs a little help, they think. So that's the context. And, of course, last week we looked at the great sin. Because you remember, not only was his family 
saying all these bad things about him. But now the, the religious leaders were coming up saying, you're, you're the devil. You're casting out people by the devil. Stop that. And we talked about verses 30 and 31, uh, excuse me, verses 28 and 29 that talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, someone who has, God has just given over to their sin, who can never come back because they have so loved their sin and hated the God of salvation. And what Jesus is going to remind these folks today is that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do his will. Friends, I pray today, there's something you can take away from this. I pray today that your desire, that you see God's desire for your Christian life is for you to be obedient to his word. Obedience is necessary to follow him because you want to follow him in everything. With that in mind, as we often do in honor of God's word, would you stand this morning as we read Mark chapter 3? We'll actually start in verse uh, 31 down to verse 35, the end of the chapter. Again, that's page 838 in the Pew Bible if you need that. Be reading out of the English Standard Version, which is the Pew Bible uh, version as well. Here it is. Familiar words to many of you, but perhaps confusing words. And it says this, And his mother, that of course being Mary, and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, called Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, him, and they stood and said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he, that's Jesus, answered them, You are my mother and my brothers. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And in verse 35, For whoever, and there's that word, does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. How in the world does that work out? Friends, it works out in this way. Those who do the will of God are called the sons and daughters of God and are by extension Christians in God because they're obedient to follow this God. That's what it's all about. Three truths about obedience today. Let's pray as we start. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that this is not familiar territory. Lord, maybe old words, but Father, I pray you bring them afresh with a new spirit. Father, we're unworthy to be in your presence outside of Christ. We're unworthy to be in your midst outside of the, the atoning sacrificial death and the resurrection and the ascension and the burial and all the, that the gospel is. Father, as we enter into a time of year where the seasons are changing, it's getting colder. Father, it's harder just to do the day-to-day things that we take for granted. Father, I pray you just renew afresh by your Spirit in our lives uh, a flame, a, a burning flame that just grows and grows and grows for your, your gospel, your, your will, and whatever that means, and whatever that means for our church, our families, our businesses, wherever you call us. Help us to be faithful. And Father, when we stumble, as we do often, as you know, thank you that grace abounded where sin abounded, Father, but grace abounded all the more. We praise you for this and pray for wisdom in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. An intervention, an intervention as we start off. And friends, I just want to remind you, three truths about obedience this morning. Intervention. Have you ever heard of this before? I've been on the good side of interventions before where that, you know, people say, hey, let's, no, you're going to stop what you're doing and you're going to go have fun. I know that's hard to believe, but yeah, Darren, you don't have to work all the time. You can actually have fun. That's a good intervention. Uh, you know, we, in a positive, we've probably all been on a part of the interventions, you know, where people, they see a pattern in your life and they see these things happening and someone in a family has a problem and the rest, you know, they talk about it. And they invite the person over, and, and when they get there, all these people are seated around. They're thinking, why are you here? And the door slams, and they say, nope, you're going to have a seat. We're going to sit down. There's something serious we need to talk to you about. 
And then they lock the door because they don't want him to get out. And this is exactly what is happening to Jesus right here. They set them down. They have something to say. Jesus' family thinks he's lost his senses. So what do they do? Look at verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came to him. They are looking for him. The verb there is one of activity. They're, they're searching for him. They're, they're trying to be obedient to what they think is right. Jesus, you're crazy. Jesus, you're nuts. Who are you that you say you can forgive all sin? And so that word and here refers to the scuffle. After this thing with the Pharisees last week about is there a great sin, now Jesus comes to them, or they come to Jesus, and they want to straighten him out as well. And it's a great reminder to us in Luke 6, 26, that Jesus said these words, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. His family is concerned for him. They're fearful for him. And now it's time to pull out the round chairs, shut the door, and say, Hey, Jesus, we're your family too, dude. Cool the jets. You're not who you say you are. But isn't it ironic? Did you notice who's with them? Who is with them? His mother. His mother. It, wait, isn't this Mary who sang the song about Jesus? Isn't this Mary who had all the prophecies, who, who supernaturally uh, was able to carry the Son of God without stain of sin? Yes, it is. So much so that this family is now at the point that Jesus is causing such a ruckus that they're ready to bring him in. It's his mother and his brothers. There's no mention of Joseph here. You notice that? Uh, if you've noticed that, Joseph probably died. It, it, we don't know how. It's probably dead by this point. But it's also interesting that Jesus had sisters as well. He had half-siblings. Matthew, in Matthew 13, gives the names of some of the brothers. And I'll list some of these for you, and then I'll list some sisters. Actually, the sisters aren't named, but uh, we're told they're James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, not the Judas Iscariot. Luke 2.7 tells us that Jesus was Mary's firstborn, and the others were born after Jesus. John 7, 5, his brothers didn't believe in him. And Mark 3, 21, the brothers, though they had thought he had lost his senses and wanted to take him out. Interesting. Is that what your family thinks about you and Jesus? Is that how they view you? They thought Jesus had lost it. But it's a great reminder to us, friends, that Mary is just a person. Can I emphasize that again? Mary is not divine. We don't pray to Mary, we don't worship Mary, we don't associate anything else to Mary except the fact that God chose her to be the bearer of the Son of God, and that is it. That's why I remember in Unsolved Mysteries, you may remember I was on an Unsolved Mysteries kick, my wife knows this, because every time we sat down we turned on Unsolved Mysteries, you remember that show? And there's sightings of Mary that happen, like there's these great things in, 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 in uh, Mexico and other places where Mary would show up, and, there, and literally thousands of people would wait for people to give a word from Mary. Friends, we don't need a word from Mary, we need a word from Jesus. And what we know is these people, his mother and his half-brothers, literally thought he needed an intervention. I mean, Jesus, how can you be the Son of God? We have the same mother, Jesus, trust me. Same mom. They understand what's happening to their brother, and they've come to him. They think they're doing the greatest good for him. And they will become, ironically, believers in the same Jesus they're trying to intervene for. Jesus intervenes by the Spirit to them. Acts 1.14, the brothers, it tells us, became true believers. It wasn't until Acts, after his resurrection, that his half-brothers and his family became Christians. Of course, you know Acts 15, J uh, James, his half-brother, was an early leader in the church. Not the apostle James, not the disciple James, but the brother of Jesus James. 
Then my favorite book, the book of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Wow. You want to know what obedience does to you? It rocks your world. And notice what they said there in verse uh, 32 as it goes on. It says that, uh, verse 31, I apologize. It says, and his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. Can you see the scene happening before you? The house is so filled with overflowing that they can't even get to Jesus. The house is so big. It reminds you, doesn't it, of Mark chapter 2. You remember the paralytic? Remember him? And he was sick, and uh, they had to go through the roof, of course. That was back, it's hard to believe, that was in February we studied through that. We've made a chapter and a half in nine months, guys. Praise the Lord. But not even another person could enter. That's how crazy it was. And so it goes on in verse 32, and it tells us that they were standing outside, and, and they called him in verse 32, and the crowd was sitting around him. The crowd was sitting around him and said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus is an adult. Isn't that weird when your mom comes looking for you when you're an adult? I mean, come on. Isn't that just odd? And he says, there's a certain amount of humor here. Your mother, Jesus, is looking for you. But they are deeply concerned that Jesus has lost it mentally. He's lost it emotionally. He's crazy. He's gone off the edge. He's fanatical. He's, uh, the rope's been cut. Uh, he's too committed to this. And so they've come to bring him back to intervene in his life. That's what radical obedience to the will of God will do to you. How possible it is to be misunderstood by your own family for your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, you may be so committed to Jesus that your family thinks you have lost your sense, literally. That you have, they think your church is a cult. I hope not. We're not passing around any Kool-Aid today, I can promise you that. But you're in very good company if that's where you are. Because this is what your family is saying about you. This is what Jesus' family, the Son of God, said about him. This passage is about Christ, but as an extension of that, an application, the more your family may feel convicted by your faith, they may be threatened by your faith, or they don't know what to do with you, quite frankly. They may do the customary thing at the holidays, saying, oh, just let them pray and let them be quiet about Jesus. But your family may misunderstood what you believe about the Bible. Your family may misunderstood about your talks about the sovereignty of God or the greatness of God, and they feel a little on edge. They're ready to have an intervention with But your family may misunderstand what you are willing to pay any cost for Christ, even go somewhere. Maybe some of you have said, you know, I'm going to go serve on a short-term mission trip somewhere across the world. And they look at you and say, why would you want to go to that country? Isn't that on a terrorist watch list? Are you nuts? Are you crazy? Well, maybe, but Jesus calls me to that sometimes. They say you're too committed, you witness too much, you spend too much time in prayer. They have an intervention with you and say, hey, come over here and just sit down and watch, watch TV for a minute. Would you cool your jets? I mean, come on, are you that committed to this guy named Jesus? And it doesn't need to be said, but friends, they may be very sarcastic to you. And this quote is not mine, you've seen it up on the screen. But it, Mike Cosper, in a great book that he just wrote a few years ago, said this, in Christ we are never misunderstood stood. Aren't you grateful for that? Is that not a weight off your shoulders this morning? You were never misunderstood in this Jesus, the same ones that his mothers and his brothers thought were crazy. Look, being misunderstood, being misrepresented, being mistreated is part of what it is to be a Christian in this world today. 
We should pray we understand and we should love well despite it. Jesus said, love your enemies. And if you love those who love, if you love those who love you, what good is that? But he said, love and pray for your enemies. If you find you're mistreated, misunderstood, and mocked as a Christian, take heart because so was your Savior. We have not even begun to give ourselves to Christ the way we are supposed to if we're honest. The most committed day I have had in my Christian life is not even a drop in the bucket of what so many go under the radar for, for Jesus Christ. So step out for the Lord. Surrender yourself to the Lord. Jesus had a family, and they had no idea what to do with him. They said, we need to get together and tell him what's going on. You know, it's kind of like this, this story that after a long, dry sermon, you'll see this up. And maybe this is how you feel after some, some Sunday mornings. Praise the Lord. The minister announced that he wished to meet with the church board following the close of the service. And so the first man to arrive was a stranger, was a visitor, actually. And, and, and the, the pastor said, sir, I think you misunderstood my announcement. And he said, this is a meeting of the board. He said, I know pastor, but if there's anyone in here more bored than I am, I'd like to meet him. Please tell me how it is. <laughs> I love that one. You know, perceptions make a big difference. Christians, we must expect not only to be opposed, but misunderstood. But let me tell you that biblical love, gospel-centered love, wins the opportunity to be better understood and to speak the gospel. Jesus is going to show forth his greatest love as we know. But he, these, his family thought he was crazy. So let's see what happens in the second point here. You may be misunderstood, but in Christ, you are never misunderstood. Whether people think you're crazy, people think you're fanatical, whether you think that you have nothing good, Christ is everything. That's what it means. Let's go on to number two. Look at verse 33, the instruction. Seeing the intervention, look at the instruction in verse 33. So his family's coming to him. They're trying to find him. They're trying to get a hold of him. People are telling him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. But notice verse 33 that he answered them and said, don't you love Jesus? Don't you have one of these in your life? They always answer questions with questions. Who are my mother and my brothers? Oh, boy. Now it gets a little bit more difficult. Jesus, they're just here to see you. Who are my mother? Who's my mother and who are my brothers? He uses the intervention for his teaching application for his misguided family. Jesus, of course, knows the answer, guys. He's not, he's the omniscient son of God. He knows his physical family, but he's going to question to teach them something through the statement about obedience. Not only must they be misunderstood at times, but Jesus is often taught by questions. I, I told you last week our daughter Scarlett is into questions. So she asks you why and you tell her, and then she says, why? Why? Why, Daddy? Because I said so. Why? You know, you get, the, you get how that goes. And she just smiles ear to ear as she says it, and it is what it is. It's good for parents and it's good for Sunday school teachers asking questions. But Jesus asked questions, did he not? He said in Matthew 16 uh, to Peter, who do men say that I am? To the disciples. He knew what the answer was. He's the omniscient son of God. He knows. He, he drew the disciples in with that question. You are the Christ, the only Son of God. And then in Matthew, in Matthew 24, I believe it is, Jesus asked, who is on this coin? Remember, they asked him if they should pay taxes, and he asked who's on this coin. Like Jesus doesn't know that Caesar's on the coin. He's making a point. This is what is happening here. He's asking a question back to these people, provocative as it is, because he wants them to get above the physical realm and focus on the spiritual realm, to think about a priority of being a member of the family of God. Friends, this is a great reminder to us that we should love our physical families, yes, 
but how much more so our spiritual ones. Our physical family is only temporary. Our spiritual family is forever. Our physical family is earthly. Our spiritual family is heavenly. Our physical family is physical by birth, but our spiritual family is spiritual by birth. So why this metaphor? Why the mothers and the brothers, or mother and brother? Because to be in the kingdom of God is like being in a spiritual family. As our whole beings are knitted together under relationship to Christ, there is a bond that transcends everything that we have in this church. So many times it goes deeper than our physical family. Your church family, church, is here to support, love, and, 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 and do things that your physical family can never do outside the name of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, by God's spirit. Wasn't it Jesus himself in John 13, 35 that said, By this all men will know you are my disciples, because you what? You love one another. Family is to be overflowing love for one another. We pull together when one has a need, and you willingly sacrifice in church. May, May God be praised. We see that grace among us, that sanctification among us. And we all begin to talk and think as Jesus as a family when we do. So, you know what's crazy? I mean, this may be provocative to you, but you have more in common with a, with, with a uh, I, I've told Natalie we're going on our 10th anniversary in a few years, we're going to go to uh, the, the Muti of the Bounty Island, where the, the mutineers went, P- uh, Pecane Island, Island, way out in the middle of the Pacific, because no one goes there, so we just get the whole place to ourselves. But if there were believers on that faraway island, uh, the, the Mutiny of the Bounty, Fletcher Christian and them did in the 1780s, you have more in common with that person you've never met in a faraway place who knows Jesus Christ than you have in common with the same person who lives across your street who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're a spiritual family. You have more in common with someone who knows Christ than you do about someone who holds your own political flavor, whether that's Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green Party, Tea Party, uh, Gatorade Party, or whatever else is out there, you name it, because of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus reminds us here is, is that the church is not a communion of friends, I chose for myself, but it's a family that God has given me and has chosen for all time. We are brothers and sisters in the same Lord. So to the end with racism, to the end with um, all the stuff that separates us as Christians. I hated growing up, uh, growing up in a small town that we had a first Baptist and a second Baptist. One was white, one was black. Why weren't we one Baptist? And those weren't at odds, and, I, and those people are still there, and I know all good people, but that's a question I've often asked myself. Why? If we're one in Christ, why are we not together in Christ? As a Christian church, we are born again, Christ-centered, gracious members. Jesus didn't die for good people who needed a moral boost in their nation. He died so that we who were alienated and condemned could be brought into his family. That's what Jesus is trying to point him out here, guys. We are one in Christ the relationship is a result we have with the relationship with Christ. Luke 14, 26, Jesus took this phrase in verse 33 a step further. Very familiar words. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The one who issues the call sets the terms. And we aren't supposed to hate our mother or our father. Please hear that clearly. But we must love Jesus Christ first and foremost with a love that surpasses all this world, especially the family of Christ. Christian, can I ask you this morning, do you love Jesus as much? Do I love Jesus as much? Do we love Jesus as much? No one has died for your sins upon the cross. No one else has come on your behalf and took the wrath of God for you except Jesus. 
No one is representing you by the Father except Jesus. And what love there should be in our hearts for us to him. What we ought to lay down our lives for our friends. How then should we love more supremely? You know, there's a great illustration, and, and this is one I didn't prepare, but I, I you know, uh, anyway, I, I got this illustration a couple of days ago, but a lady came to a pastor and said, Pastor, I'm really, you know, I'm sick of this person doing this in the church, doing this in the church, doing this in the church, and the, the service had ended. And just like Jesus, the pastor said, go get a drink of water. I say, what, what does that have to do with what I'm saying? So go get a cup of water, okay? The lady goes and gets a cup of water. And she tells it, the pastor tells her, look, you walk around the whole church three times without dropping a drop of water, and I'll talk to you about what you just said. And the lady says, all right, pastor, you're on. And so she does. She walks around focusing on that cup the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. She doesn't spill a drop of water. You know what happens? She goes up to the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm ready to talk to you about this person who gossiped. You know, this person's doing this in the church, Pastor, and I know this stuff about this person. And the pastor said, what were you just doing? Well, I was walking around with a cup, Pastor. And what were you doing while you were walking around with that cup? I was focused on the cup. Why were you focused on the cup? Because I didn't want to spill a drop because I wanted to talk to you about this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. What were you doing while you were walking? I was focused on the cup. Did you spill any water? No. The light bulbs came on the lady's mind. She said, lady, look, if you're focused on Jesus Christ, you're not going to be caring. If anyone else has sin and spills stuff all around you, your focus is going to be right there. And friends, as we come together as a church, it's exactly how our focus should be. Your preference may not be this preference. Your preference may not be that preference. You may not like the way this person dresses. Hey, pastor, nice purple tie, but I prefer red. You, whatever it is. But if we are focused on Christ, all that other stuff, when we're focused on Him, goes by the wayside. That doesn't mean we don't confront sin. We believe in biblical church discipline. That doesn't mean that we don't confront gossip and all those things. We do. We should. That's biblical for the body of Christ. But as we're focused on Christ, it changes everything, doesn't it? It really, really does. You know, George Whitfield, and this one I did prepare, a lady asked George Whitfield. I love George Whitfield's eyes, by the way. He always, uh, his eyes, anyway. There are arresting eyes, let's just say that. A woman came to him and said, Whitfield, why must I be born again? And the lady, he said to the lady, lady, you must be born again because you've never been born again at all. She said, that's dumb. He said, have you been born again? No, then you need to be born again. What's the point? The point is this. Friends, Jesus is going to draw us back to the same thing over and over. He doesn't care what this person's doing. He doesn't care what that person's doing necessarily. He wants your focus on him so much that when you look at everyone else around you, when your family says you're crazy, when, when everyone in the church says you're nuts for loving Jesus that much, your focus is on him. And for this lady, she had to come to Christ. For you, it's what is it that's distracting you from that laser focus that gets you on Christ? May that be the prayer for our church as well. That's the instruction. I hope that makes sense. hope that makes sense. Now, someone's going to challenge me to the water race after church. I can already tell you. You are on. Let's do it. So you got it. You're on. If you spill a drop, you clean it up. That's how it goes. Number three, you've seen the intervention. They called him crazy. Jesus said, no, I've got more to tell you. He told them the instruction. Now let's get the interpretation as we close out this morning. He says in verses 34 through 35, you'll look at those with me in your scriptures. Jesus says this, he goes on to say, and looking at those who sat around him, remember these are the people who are crowding the house so his parents and his, or his mom and his brothers can't get in. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, Jesus, that couldn't be any more confusing if I'm right there. What in the world does this mean? And he said, friends, I just want you to know, we really don't have a lot of words of Jesus, but we have to take these very seriously that we do. The words of Jesus are an equal authority and equal length with every other word, although he is the incarnate son of God. But if we took all the days of Jesus' ministry, I want you to know it would be of like 50 days worth of talking is all we really have. And it is strategically, by the inspiration of the Spirit, placed where it is. There's no fluff. Everything from the lips of our Lord is enormous. So when he says, this is what it is, here it is. So he says that phrase, here are. Here are what? He's motioning to those people around him. My mother and my brothers. He addresses to those seated around him. And he's identifying his ultimate family. These are the kingdom of God, and these are my real mother and my real brothers. And one does he set aside the importance. He said, these are the people that are my family. Why are the people his family? Look back at verse 35. He tells you why they're his family. He says, for, that's causal, it's, it's causation, it's, it's the reason, it's the because, it's, it's where we're getting with our daughter. Why? Because, we're getting that because we're there. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Let's be very, very careful here. That word for introduces an exclamation, but it's not saying that you must do things to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not saying by good works you enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not what's in play here. In fact, what's in play is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is they have taken up their cross, they're following Jesus, and they submitted their lives to his lordship. That is the difference. We don't live in perfect obedience. You know that. You live that every day. But there's a new direction. There's a new thing. Those who do the will of God are those who are saved in God. You are not saved by works. You're saved by the work of one, Jesus Christ, but your works definitely show whether you are saved. Isn't this why Jesus said that he who endures to the end will be saved? If there is someone who shows no fruit of repentance in their lives, shows no forth good works, we would question whether or not they know Jesus Christ. Because he says here, it's not just enough to think about the will of God. Don't you love that? I've shared this before. You guys went to college or in high school. You could make out the most ridiculous scenarios and write it on a paper. And as long as you had a few quotes from some good sources, you got an A on that paper. Hey, pastor, did you know that we can time travel and go back in time and change everything? Oh, really? Well, I got an A on the paper. My teacher thinks so. It's not just to think about big things. It's not just enough to to think about doing the will of God. It's to value the will of God, to treasure the will of God, to know the will of God, and whoever does the will of God, and it's active, it's a doing. It's not just being a sitting-in-the-pew person, it's doing the will of God. It's evidence that you know Him. Saving faith is the root, and the heart of obedience is the fruit, if you want to get that way. And, I, and you'll see this on the screen, but I didn't invite Jesus into my heart. He gave me a new heart. It's a huge difference, guys. It's a huge difference. Jesus didn't say, you notice they didn't say to Jesus, Jesus, come into my heart. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Jesus said, if you do the will of God, you are saved. So, pastor, are you saying again that you are saved by works? No. But faith is active. And if you're actively 
showing forth your faith, you're actively showing forth that God himself, by the power of the Spirit, has given you a new heart. Let me read to you Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 quickly. Ezekiel says, I will give you, or God says to Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you know it, you can repeat it with me if you got it. (laughs) Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. Praise the Lord. That old, stubborn, resistant, stinky heart that was once in you, that wanted to do your own thing and your own choices, God has ripped that out, Indiana Jones style, and, 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 and implanted a new one. God takes out the spiritually dead and removed and puts it in. That's how we know. And that new heart has a heart of flesh. It's responsive to everything. This has happened to everyone in the family of God. That's why we take church membership here seriously. We don't just let you walk an aisle to become a member here. We want to know you. We want to know your testimony. We want to know what God's done in your life. Because by knowing that, we know whether you're of the fruit. I joke with people and say, that's why we check your door. That you don't have a Book of Mormon walking through with a Bible cover on it. There's some pretty cool Bible covers. You can hide lots of things in those things these days. But outside the family, that you don't have a desire to obey God, you have a desire to obey flesh. So what does this look like? Let me give you seven quick things. The true marks of obedience. You say, Darren, I don't see these all in my life. That's fine. Pray that, pray that God works on you through these. Let me give you seven. One at a time. We're closing with this. The true mark of obedience, doing the will of God. Number one, a true mark of obedience is that it is immediate. It's immediate. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You're, my mama used to tell me, tomorrow is the devil's day. You ever heard that phrase before? But today's God's day. Prompt, ready, willing is the present and now. And when we obey God and his word, the word is made known to us. And once you know the Bible teaches and requires of you, the longer you wait to step out, the more disobedient you are. We talked about the silly guy Jonah last week, didn't we? The word of the Lord came to him. And we don't know all those details until you get to chapter 4. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 2, and Jonah gets mad. God, why would you save those Ninevites, those willy-nilly people? Why would you save them? And he got mad at God. He said, God, didn't I tell you I hated him? Didn't I tell you I didn't want to go? Didn't I tell you? And the prophet who was swallowed by a fish, who cried out a beautiful prayer in chapter 2, who preaches a message in chapter 3, stomps his foot at God and says, "Mm, God, I'm mad at you. And his obedience went from immediate to immediate disobedience just because of that. You know the rest of the story. A true mark of following Christ radically is an immediate obedience. Secondly, it's full obedience. Not just parts of Scripture. You don't go all Thomas Jefferson on the Bible and ripping out the parts that are hard and putting in the lovey-dovey chapters. That's in the Smithsonian if you want to see it. But not just parts of Scripture to pick and choose, but the entirety of Scripture. You obey the full counsel of God. I love what it says in Acts about Paul that when he went house to house to teach as a pastor, he shared the full counsel of God. Not just the easy stuff, so to speak, but the hard stuff as well. Partial obedience is disobedience. Honey, would you take out the trash, and would you take the trash to the street? Well, if I take out the trash, that's a win right there. Amen, husbands. But taking it to the street when it's rainy and cold, that's a whole other battle. But it requires full obedience to a wife, and how much more so to a faithful God. Number three, a true mark is obedience is from the heart. It's from the heart. 
Ephesians 6, 6 says that, that Paul was doing the will of God, quote, from the heart. One thing to do the will of God externally. It's one thing to be religious, to do religious things, to do all sorts of busyness for God. It's another for us to do it through the heart. Have you prayed lately, Lord, am I just an autopilot spiritually, literally, or is my heart set before you to repent of sin before you and others? Fourth, true obedience is spirit-enabled. It's spirit-enabled. It's not the power of your flesh. It's not the power of your flesh. Remember, when we preached through the five souls of the Reformation, we, we, we kind of mentioned that Luther, Martin Luther used to, well, maybe we didn't mention this. I don't remember. Too many conversations. But Luther used to take literally a whip, and he'd beat himself. If he could beat himself into submission, then maybe he'd be more holy. Maybe if he crawled up a few more stairs on his knees until they were bloodied, maybe he could get closer to God. And then he got to that phrase, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love for us, by grace you have been saved, not of works. We must rest within the power of God in us. Fifth, true obedience is scripture-led obedience. All obedience is based first off on the word of God. Not because someone came to you and said, God told me this, and it contradicts the Scripture. We are not under those who obey mystical whims, and I'm so grateful for that. I remember growing up, and maybe you, this is my generation, but they used to have the magic eight balls. You remember those? And I thought it was so cool. You could say, hey, neighbor kid, ask a question, and you just show it. And they're like, whoa, where did you learn that power? I don't know. My mom got it for me, and that's how it was. I don't know. And how often do we do that spiritually? God, boy, I'm looking for a word from you, so I'm going to turn on 91.9. I'm going to turn on 97.3. And if that doesn't do it, I'm going to go local, Lord. I'm going to go (laughs) 88.5. Praise God. And if the word's not on there, I'm going to turn on channel 16. Friends, we don't play spiritual roulette. The scripture tells us how to live out the word of God. Our conscience is bound by the written word of God. Aren't you glad you're not bound to that sort of Christianity? By God's grace, we aren't. Six, we are bound by Christ-centered obedience. Christ said, follow me. It means pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me. Obedience to Christ. No other way. Don't follow your pastor necessarily. Although it says obey your leaders, and that's a whole topic for another sermon. Don't follow your congregation necessarily. Although the Bible says we believe that, the, the, that God has given the congregation that power, that local authority in the church. But follow ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience is in Christ. Disobedience is away from that. And finally, number seven, true marks of obedience. You are blessed by God. If you follow God, it always leads to blessing, doesn't it? Even if it's hard. John 13, 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, all the things he talked about, you are blessed if you do them. Don't you love that? I forget which one, and Nathaniel, our intern, uh, who's, all, who's uh, like, my level of thinking is down here. His is way up here. Super smart, super practical, and I love you, brother. Uh, brother, I don't know which school it was. Is it Yale that has uh, John 831, the truth will set you free? One of those, Harvard, has it above one of the chapels. you know which one that is? Is it Harvard? I don't know. Uh, you're from the Northeast. That's why I was picking on you. So I don't know. Well, I, hey, I knew something Nathaniel doesn't. One of those guys has that. John 8, 31, 32, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's Matrix-like, 2000 movie, Matrix 2, Matrix 3, all those things. And that sounds so great. Just get Jesus' word, you'll be set free. But he says, if you follow me. Not just any truth, but it's truth that's bled out in action. Friend, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. 
Jesus' family had to set him straight. And Jesus finally said, his family, he loved him. He loved him so much. You, you know how much he loved him? You remember what he did on the cross? You remember what he did? When he was dying, he said to John, behold your mother and, and, and to his mother Mary, behold your son. He looked after John to look after his mom. But the question becomes, have we become complacent in obeying the simple words of Jesus as they are? Friends, may we be straightforward, convictional in all that we do. And as we pray as a church, if people look at Tarvey and say, what nut jobs are in there? Then may we look back and say, if it's for God's glory, then may we be called crazy. Because he's given us a lot of crazy love, and it's love eternal. And what a great love it is. Pray these marks in your life. Pray these marks for the, your church. Pray these marks in your family. Let's pray as we close today. Father God, as we come before you, we are reminded of the fact that we can do nothing apart from your spirit. Father, as a pastor, it's easy to say love Jesus more, but it's, it, we walk out of here and say, how in the world do we do that? Father, I pray we're in the scriptures this week. We're, we're looking at things, new things perhaps, old things, but all things to your glory because the word is your word. That, Father, that you would refresh our minds, that you would uh, draw us close to you. Father, for some in this room, it, as radical as it is, it's, it's loving those who, who have mistreated them, who've misspoken about them, who've posted public things on, 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 on social media about them, that, that you have to work in their hearts to be radically obedient, to pray and love them and forgive them even if they don't feel that way. Father, for some in here, it's for their families, as you know, who, Father, it's just simply stepping away from their, their family who just thinks they're nuts for living for Jesus. Father, give them the strength. Call them out, Father. But at the same time, let, uh, give them grace to love people where they are, but share boldly the gospel. Father, for some in here, it's, it's, it's being that, that uh, fly on the wall or, or flower on the wall at work, never speaking of Jesus, just kind of checking in, checking out. But you're calling them. You've been pushing them for weeks to be faithful, to be a witness in their work. Father, give them strength and boldness. Lead them in a way everlasting. You will. Father, there's so many scenarios. You know where people are today. Father, we pray for these different marks for us. We pray that they would be instant in our lives. We pray that we'd follow you wholeheartedly, even when it's hard. Father, thank you that, there, that in Christ there is a but. but. But, Father, when we fail, you're there. But when we really mess it up, you're there. But, Lord, help us to see all things to your glory. Father, thank you for these dear saints. We pray, Lord, all these things today in Jesus' name and God's people's sake.